Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. When you have insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. How do you know you're not overpaying? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a technology company that securely connects with your insurance and reviews your claims for overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds and Governor Ron DeSantis, or as he's known... Tiny D, his ban on gender-affirming care has been overturned by a federal judge. We have a great show today. Representative Yvette Clark stops by to talk to us about the need to regulate AI, and it's actually a really fun interview. Then we'll talk to historian Kevin Cruz about the precedent of third-party candidates and how it works out not well. But first, we have the host of... The Time of Monsters, The Nation's Jeet Here. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Jeet Here. Welcome back to having me on Fast Politics, Wally Zhangya <laughs> Foster. Yes, very excited to have you. And especially because I feel like everything, and again, I feel like every time I say this, I'm like tempting the gods, but it seems very much like everything has actually gotten stupider <laughs> since the last time we talked. Yes. You know, there's a big debate in philosophy. Are we living in the best of all possible worlds? Are we living in the worst of all possible worlds? And I've come to the conclusion, yes, we are living in the stupidest of all possible worlds. And that was um, really shaped by a news idea I saw earlier this week where Cardi B is fighting with the, the submarine stepson. And I thought, like, in what possible universe could like this happen and be a, a news story Except in the stupidest of all possible worlds. I'm going to raise you one here because I want to get involved in Little Bitch Gate. 
Marjorie Taylor Greene, who, as you know, is known for her racism, her stupidity, her whatever, is in a fight with Lauren Boebert and called her a little bitch. Discuss. Well, I'm going to talk a little bit out of turns just as the, the, the father of uh, three girls, although this would be the same as the father of three boys, which is that if you, if you deal with children, you're forced to deal with a certain amount of social interaction where they get ex- into these petty fights, which is like, you're copying me, you're an uh, idiot, you're stupid, you're a little words that we don't want our kids to use. I was like, reminded of this. And it, like, it really does seem like this is a, sort of like a junior high school drama played out in the halls of Congress. I mean, having said that, like, this is like no worse than anything else that Republicans could be doing and, and perhaps even a little bit better because at least it's it, entertaining. Yeah, I have to say, as stupid crap goes, I mean, they're also like booing McCarthy. I mean, I know we say this every day, but like, has McCarthy completely lost control of his caucus? Yeah, I, I don't think that he has control. And they can only really unite uh, in a negative way, right? Like we're in the age of negative polarization. I think this is more, even more true of the of Republicans and the Democrats. And so they can unite to uh, what they did with Adam Schiff, you know, like try to impeach Joe Biden. Isn't the beginning of this fight that they both wanted to impeach Biden and had different mechanisms for it? Well, that's why I brought the junior grade school. Right. Because that is actually a conversation <laughs> yes. I hear in manga. Young people like you're copying me, you know, like I was doing that first, <laughs> you know, like I was drawing Snoopy and then now you're drawing Snoopy. Right. You know, in the absence of substantive politics, all you have are like free floating petty grudges and narcissism and uh, partisanship. And that's what we're seeing play out. Right. Like it's just that's all they have. It seems kind of amazing. So we have this house. They can't pass their messaging bills. They can't figure out what they're going to do, these Republicans in the House. And McCarthy, you think he ends up getting to stay or you think this is the end of it? Uh, hard to predict. I, I mean, if I would to say anything, I don't see how he can uh, stay for long. I, I do kind of see an implosion coming. I mean, I think the longer, more positive thing is that this gives the Democrats a, a really great thing to run on to regain the House. So I want to talk to you about something that I think you'll appreciate. I just read a little article about how much cable news networks, even the non-right-leaning, the normal ones, spend a lot of time. And and it's funny because I've been on panels like this too. And mainstream media does this a lot where they spend a lot of time talking about Biden's age. Like that's a favorite topic. And he is incredibly old. But they don't talk about the fact that he is three years older than Trump. I mean, do you think that's strange? Yeah, I kind of think that's except that I think a lot of these things are driven by political messaging from the parties. So the Democrats have not really made Trump's age an issue because surprise, surprise, there's like a hundred other things about the guy. That, right to me. Right. You know, like he tried to pull a coup, you know, uh, he's corrupt as hell. He's under criminal investigation and indictment. You don't need to talk about his age. The Republicans have really hammered home his age, and they keep doing it. They they have a lot of um, ads and t- tweets. Their people talk about Biden's age all the time. And this is really an example of which how the media follows the messaging cues of the Republican Party. Yeah, I mean, just unbelievable, right? I, I mean, sort of shocking. It's shocking, except that I think this is what Josh Marshall talks about a lot which is that the Republican Party and the media 
have a symbiotic relationship. We're going back to the Reagan era, where the I think a lot of people in the mainstream party have just decided the Republicans are, despite all evidence and despite all elections, the mainstream American political party. And if they say something, then that's like, well, that's something that has to dominate the Sunday talk shows, you know? I think there's a, a sector of the media that is very geared, despite everything, to treating the Republicans as the serious, grown-up, mainstream party. I mean, is it that sort of brilliant lie that Republicans have convinced the media they're too lefty and so they have to sort of go along with the Republican narrative in the way they might not if they weren't worried about appearing too lefty? Yeah, no, I think there's a bit of brilliant sort of working of the refs. But I mean, a lot of it, I mean, if you look at what's happening at CNN, a lot of it comes from the fact that a lot of media is just corporate. And so, you know, the people working there, including the host or whatever, might be lean liberal or lean fundrist even. But the people owning these companies are, you know, they're they're pretty standard Republicans. And they're always putting pressure, you know, like, uh, why aren't I hearing, you know, these GOP talking points? I went to a party the other night and there were a lot of wealthy, very wealthy people. And this conversation moved to a thing that I hear a lot of wealthy people talk about, which is how little they're allowed to talk about, <laughs> that they can't, they don't have free speech. <laughs> I wondered if this was just bullshit they say in order because they just don't want to pay taxes <laughs> or if they really do feel like any kind of accountability on speech is somehow censorship. Well, I, I think it's the old saying that, you know, like if you're privileged, then, you know, equality looks like oppression, right? They've been used to get, you know, having their speech dominate for years and not get challenged. I mean, that's the thing. Now they can still say all the things they believe, but they're going to get challenged and they're going to be made fun of. And I think this is the, the sort of way in which social media led to this panic about wokeness, which is really a panic about the fact that if you say something, dumb right-wing things, then you will actually right. get people like <laughs> people you, make fun people of make you. Fun of you. Yes. And, and I think there's a you know there's a class of rich people that find that intolerable. That you know like the peasants are revolting, as uh, as Mel Brooks likes to say. Yeah, I mean just unbelievable. And in fact, I've been listening to Gore Vidal's essays from a million years ago, and and they're very and there's a lot of stuff in there that's you know that is not how we write or talk anymore. But what I think is so interesting is he talks about the people who were so against the Equal Rights Amendment being passed and the kind of scare tactics they used, women using men's <laughs> bathrooms, right? It's all the same stuff. No, exactly. I yeah, know the, the panic has gone back a long time and it, it, there's nothing new under the sun for, for all that. I, I think the new aspect is what you uh, zeroed in on, which is that I think the rich in particular feel imperiled. And I think that they're the ones that are funding a lot of these sort of anti-woke campaigns and making that a part of politics because they do feel threatened that, you know, they're not getting their way on everything as they're used to. Yeah. I mean, that was what I was struck by. And the, you know, the seriousness with which these people take themselves was, I mean, good for them, you know, <laughs> but. <laughs> well, I, you know, I mean, I mean, like, honestly, I think for rich people. It's actually, I think, you know, the sort of uh, revolt that we're seeing, the sort of, you know, uprising and challenging is, is actually good for them, but they're not going to appreciate it. But I mean, it's good to have, if you're used to always getting your own way, that makes you a very poor judge of things in life. And, you know, you actually need someone to say, like, you shouldn't get into this, like, submarine that's just like a, a tin can <laughs> uh, <laughs> operated by a, a little computer module. Like, it just it makes no sense, right? If, if you're used to getting your own way, 
and always being surrounded by yes people, you're, you're not going to have that, you know, common sense grounding in reality that the, the rest of us have. I mean, it is it's I, I mean, I do think that thing you just said where fairness, the quest for fairness, the interest in fairness looks like oppression to them. I mean, right. None of this is fair. Right. We're just trying to, you know, have a little bit less wealth inequality. And that is infuriating to them. I do think it's interesting because like we see, you know, what we've seen with Twitter is what happens when very rich people get the platform, right? (laughs) Get famous and get to say whatever they want. And what I think is so interesting is like, they are really surprised at how much the rest of us don't like them. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is the whole Elon Musk story as well, right? You know, I mean, he was okay with being a Democrat as long as uh, nothing he was interested in was being challenged, you know? But, you know, once you add like Black Lives Matter and uh, trans rights, and even people talking about taxation, he feels like under threat. And so, you know, like, okay, I'm going to buy Twitter and make it like illegal to use the word cis. That whole illegal to use the word cis thing. He has a trans kid. He has a trans kid who he does not speak to and, you know, who has decided not to be part of his life anymore. I mean, when the biography of Elon Musk gets written, I think it'll be fascinating. But it, I think it is a case of one, one of these privileged people that could not get what he wanted and could not deal with alternative points of view. And it really drove him crazy. It is an amazing thing that, yeah, the fact that Elon Musk could not handle having a trans kid, like, drove him to, like, this insanity of, like, you know, like, losing billions of dollars by buying Twitter and then also wrecking it and destroying his reputation by, you know, like, you, like, really openly aligning with the far right. It's just, like, an amazing kind of thing to happen. It is just what we've been talking about throughout this whole conversation. Just a little bit of challenge is too much for them. It really does feel like the telltale heart or something, some kind of Victorian novel where somebody goes insane <laughs> from nothing. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Except that I think a lot of it is preemptive. I just said, we're only just talking about fairness, but I think that they can imagine, like, well, what if people actually did something? And I think they're really preemptively trying to prevent, like, further social change. Oh, yes, I think that's right. Now, the question I have is like, we're, you know, it's another one of these really, really scary hot summers where it's too hot and the Texas power grid is hanging by a thread and we have tornadoes and, you know, it's the warmest the Atlantic has ever been. I mean, I just saw someone write, like, people aren't going to be able to survive summers in Texas soon. I mean, does this just keep going on? Does anyone ever stop and go like, oh, my God, we're so fucked. We have to do something or no, never. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's very hard to say, except that I want to uh, say that there are some positive developments. Like I do think like, you know, renewables are getting better and better. I don't think we should fall under doomerism. But yeah, we're heading for very bad times. I think that you have to just write off a certain chunk of the population that, you know, like even if it gets like 150 degrees, they're going to be like, Dr. Fauci did this. You know, like, right. like right, right, right. Well, that's what we've seen from COVID. Yeah. And they, they will come up with these weird conspiracy theories, you know, like facts themselves don't change yet. I think the only hope is that we do see the kind of social movements we've seen, like, you know, uh, on climate action uh, with people like Greta Thunberg. And, you know, like, oh, uh, I think that's the only hope that if you have actual movements of people that try to change political thinking, then uh, you can get that. But I I think that right from the start, you have to write off 33% of the population are never going to acknowledge what's happening. 
Right. But I mean, can you fix climate change if you have such a large percentage of the country that doesn't believe it's happening? I think that's really hard. And I think in some ways, I mean, you mentioned the COVID and COVID kind of shows the problem of collective action in a society where a big chunk of the population rejects rational science. I, I don't know. I think that's the great challenge of our time. Yeah. You don't feel as doomery as I do, right? I mean, I think, you know, like the science is pretty rough in terms of what we're heading for. On the other hand, I do actually see like there's a lot of people are organizing. And I, I think that's the one hope that if we can get a sort of pol a political place where people are like pushing for positive change, then I, I, I think a lot of these problems are actually not totally solvable, but we can get to a livable future with the technology that we have. What are the things you're watching right now? Well, well I mean, the courts and what's happening with the courts. June is the month of court decisions. We see some really bad ones coming out, especially like, um, I think this doesn't get as much attention because it's not as sexy, but the law, criminal justice stuff, terrible stuff. I mean, like basically the current decision that came out today, like even if you're innocent, you're not going to, yeah, you get your rights stripped. I, I just think that that's uh, terrible stuff. And then the good point is that the political reputation of the court is an all-time low. I just saw a poll right. which only like 29% of Americans have faith in the courts. Yeah, they're very unpopular. And yeah. And, uh, you know, like, as they said in The Wolf of Wall Street, those are rookie numbers, you know? <laughs> right. let, 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 let's keep getting them down there. Let, let, let's get, the, you know, let's get them to 0%, right? But, I mean, what's happening, I think that we're heading towards a real, like, constitutional crisis with the courts. If they keep putting out, like, unpopular decisions and are also blatantly corrupt, you know, as we saw with this recent Alito story. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, even though the Democrats are reluctant to have this fight, I think public opinion might drive them to this, that, that there's going to be uh, a reckoning with the courts. I think there's no way that they that doesn't happen. Yeah. I mean, it's their job. You know, it's Democrats job. Like, it, people are so angry about the courts. Yeah, it's their job. But I mean, you know, the current leadership, I don't know if, what they're going to do. I mean, Dick Durbin, he doesn't have a fighter's instinct. His instinct is to like write an angry letter, or not even angry letter, mildly annoyed letter to John Roberts. Right, right. But with new leadership, I think things could change. So interesting. Thank you so much, Cheat. I hope you will come back. Yeah, of course. I always enjoy being on. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries, right? Well, not so fast. What about your out-of-pocket costs? That can be a lot of money for you and your family. And if you're like me, you can't help but wonder, was I overbilled? You're not alone. It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? It's a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claims for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. HealthLock finds medical bill errors before you pay. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. 
So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Congresswoman Yvette Clark represents New York's 9th District. Welcome to Fast Politics, Representative Clark. Well, thank you for having me, Molly. Great to be with you. I'm really glad to have you. And I am really interested in talking to you about AI regulation, which is, I feel like this is like another opportunity for Congress to finally do some tech regulation that they've shied away from before. Can you talk to me about this? Sure. Well, let me just say that I've introduced legislation that I think is, you know, really critical, particularly moving into this election season. And it's called the Real Political Ads Act. It dawned on me because I've been doing some work in legislating around deep fake technology and some other concerns that I've had 
with the rapid deployment of AI that with this upcoming election cycle, this will be one of the first elections that we've had where AI will be an integral part of what people use to advertise their positions uh, politically during a campaign. And I, and I thought about the fact that, you know, we're in a very toxic political environment. Yes. And those who want to be deceptive, who want to harm their opponents for the sake of winning an election can really do some damage with AI-generated advertising. And we've already seen this happen with the Trump campaign. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about that? Or was it the DeSantis campaign that did it? Actually, it was the RNC. Oh, that's right. The RNC did it. Jesus Christ. It was the RNC. And what they decided to do was create a video using AI, AI generated, that really depicted President Biden in this dystopian U.S., you know, presiding over a nation that, you know, was just totally out of control. And oh, yeah, I remember. And so it's just critical what they did to their credit was they they did provide a disclaimer. <laughs> right. Which there's no regulation that says they have to. Exactly. But, but that's what my legislation does. It essentially says just like we have required in broadcast and, you know, radio, there needs to be a disclaimer right? Uh, so that the American people are not deceived into believing that what they're seeing in terms of political ads are real. I'm just fact checking this DeSantis campaign shares apparent AI generated fake images of Trump and Fauci. So, yes, right. the DeSantis campaign also did it shockingly. You're correct. My legislation doesn't necessarily address this, but the audio AI where people's voices are mimicked to, you know, the the ultimate tone of, of someone sounding real. Right. There's a lot for us to be concerned about in this moment. I think that uh, my legislation starts the ball rolling uh, because, you know, I think that people are far more sensitive to be bombarded by advertising during, you know, the highest political seasons that, you know, it, it, it can be very detrimental. It's detrimental in and of itself when people are unable to distinguish between what is real and what is fictitious and generated by AI. So there's a lot of work for us to do in this space, but I think that, you know, we can begin by at least requiring disclaimers in this period of time where we are going to be, you know, engaged politically and, and where we know that, that there unfortunately has been violence sparked in the context of, of our political seasons. Does it seem like the Republicans in Congress seem very busy fighting with each other and fighting with Kevin McCarthy and calling each other terrible names? I mean, do you think that you could conceivably get this through the House? I was happy to hear that Senator Schumer and a bipartisan group of senators are beginning to move at least with an examination of AI. I think that that high level of engagement may spark some movement 
in the house. I'm going to push for it as, as hard as I can because, you know, it, it, at the end of the day, I'm in the minority. I've introduced the legislation. It's going to, you know, require colleagues on the other side of the aisle seeing the significance of this because, you know, it, it, the sword cuts both ways. They seem like they're in disarray. They are. <laughs> Nancy Pelosi, when she was like that speech where she was like, you all look miserable. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's it's a rough situation. The thing about it is that we all pay the price for their dysfunction. Right. You know, it, I, I would love to be able to sit back and, and just laugh and, and, you know, but I know, you know, as well as you do, Molly, what's at stake here? We've seen political violence in our lifetime. Oh, yeah. Recently. Aside from all the other, you know, dangers that we have out here, the self-inflicted danger of people being deceived into actions that they can't control is not a good look for the United States. Just talk us through, because I think our people actually, our listeners will be really interested in this. When you have a house like this, where it's very tight, there's a five seat majority. If you wanted to theoretically, I mean, we did pass a debt ceiling bill. So like their bipartisan legislation can be passed, maybe with bad consequences towards Kevin McCarthy. But I mean, life is life. But my question to you is, if you needed to get this passed, and it does seem in my mind like a bipartisan thing a little bit because you do have Republicans who are, you know, they hate TikTok. They have, you know, some anxieties about tech as well. They should. Do you think it would work better to pass it in the Senate first? You know, like I said, I think that remains to be seen. However, with sort of the announcement by Chuck Schumer of this bipartisan working group that is taking it up, I think it provides more pressure on the House to deal with this and to deal with it like immediately. And I, like I said, I think the lowest hanging fruit for us would be uh, dealing with political advertising because that's right that, you know, that's right in front of us right now. And what we're asking is not something that's far fetched because we already require disclaimers in political advertising, like I said, in either broadcast or radio that we're just extending it now to other platforms that, you know, didn't exist at the point in time where that, that law w went into effect. It's not a heavy lift, Molly. It's just getting sort of the right folks, starting with the chairwoman of the Energy and Commerce Committee, uh, you know, to, to mark up the bill and, and to get some, um, you know, Republican colleagues as co-sponsors. Right. And do you feel like there's an appetite for that? I think that we can generate the right argument for it. Now, what's happening on the other side of the aisle in terms of their political <laughs> strategizing? Because they're not really doing a whole lot of governance. No. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll dictate it. Now, if they were in a governance mode, th this would be a no-brainer. That wouldn't exist if they were in a governance mode. Right. Exactly. So, you know, hey, hey, listen, we've got to try. At the end of the day, that's why we introduced the legislation. I'm not a defeatist person by any stretch of the imagination. We're going to keep probing colleagues on the other side of the aisle if we can get them to focus, you know, for, for a moment on doing the right thing, not only by the nation, but, you know, by each other. Perhaps we can, you know, get this bill uh, moving in committee and, um, you know, th there'll be a eureka moment where both 
uh, the House and the Senate can move to make this law. The thing I'm struck by about AI is that like there was not the tech regulation we desperately needed in this country. Right. And there has been in Europe to a certain extent a little bit better. But we really like government or government really sort of just blew it on that. I feel like there's a feeling that this could be a way to sort of make it right. I hope so. I mean, there are a number of steps that precedes AI that we haven't dealt with, right? So just the whole idea of privacy, data ownership, things of that nature. I mean, all of this exists because the American people are basically, you know, giving away their data in order to use a utility that is the internet. And every time we search, you know, we go into big data and algorithms are deployed. We have no conscious level of engagement with what is happening to us. And so it was really up to, to, I believe, Congress to set up the guardrails to protect the American people. And so we've done a number of hearings on privacy, but nothing has moved yet. I've got a piece of legislation in on, you know, algorithmic bias and, and what damage that can do to our society that hasn't been dealt with yet. And AI is, is a convergence of both the exposure to data and the algorithms that ultimately, you know, govern sort of what we consume. It's sort of the perfect marriage of both that at the end of the day will give guidance to sort of the behaviors of a civil society if we don't put up these goalposts, if you will. Right. So let me ask you, you're a New York Congresswoman, we have a lot of problems here with housing, but we also have these migrants who have come here who are being resettled here. Can we absorb these people as we should? And how and and are there people on the ground who are helping this happen? Or do you feel that they are being used as political pawns? Both are correct. I think that you use as political pawns, but I also believe that we can absorb them. I don't think it has to be a New York solution. I think it needs to be a national solution. There, you know, there are parts of this country where they're poised for expansion, right? Most of the country is, I mean, we have a tight, tight labor market. Absolutely. We need people. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think they're just sort of this false construct of scarcity that has been erected to scare people. When, you know, we know for a fact that right now there there are labor shortages, there are more jobs and more opportunities than we have people to fill them. And that's assuming that we don't give migrants opportunity. You know, I I think that if, if, you know, we were honest, uh, we could create, um, you know, pathways for work authorization while these individuals sort of get their documentation and everything in order. And, and adjudicate it. You know, at the end of the day, yes, this is a, a nation of laws, but it's also a nation of immigrants. So, right. yeah. you know, it's not either or. All the evidence shows that we desperately need people in this country, right? We need them to pay into Social Security. We need them to work jobs. We have these Republican governors in the middle of the country who are loosening child labor laws because they don't have anyone to work in the factories. I mean, so clearly this is a situation where we actually really do need people. And by keeping them out, it just it makes no sense. Yeah. And, and, we're, and we're not keeping them out. 
we're trapping them in a no-win situation, you know, a very unhealthy situation, unhealthy for them and unhealthy for the greater civil society. There's a lot of work that we can do in that space. That, uh, unfortunately, you know, it's become a political football, but for some of our colleagues, they've been able to use very successfully, you know, fear tactics, you know, around sort of these individuals who who are making their way to the United States, who have made their way to the United States. But, you know, the data and statistics demonstrate that, you know, all of the propaganda that my colleagues are using don't bear out in terms of, you know, what they're peddling in terms of fear tactics. In a civil society like ours and in a city like New York, where, you know, where an immigrant portal, if you will, we can make it work. We just need the tools to make it work. Yeah, it makes me wonder what we're doing here, right? Because Republicans used to be for immigrant. I mean, all of this stuff that they're so against, they used to be for. This is a different brand. This is MAGA. And MAGA, the disciples of Donald Trump, who, if you know his political history, you know, was not a Republican until very recently. Right, right, right. This is a group of cult followers that are linked to a cult of personality around Donald Trump, who puts his finger in the air and whichever direction blows the meanest, that's the direction he's moving it. Right, right, right. And, and, and poking a lot of people with him. Yeah, I mean, just unbelievable. I mean, do you think that Democrats have a shot to take back the House and do you feel like they have a plan? And New York, even more importantly than that, as a New Yorker, I have been disappointed that Democrats lost seats in New York and that Jay Jacobs continues to be the chair of the Democratic Party in New York. Well, let me say that last year was a very unique year in that it was a redistricting year. And I think that no one could have anticipated, you know, what ultimately took place with the courts in New York state around a special master and a whole host of other things that really swung the pendulum in an extreme direction that made far more of the, I think, seats in the state right-leaning than had ever been before. We were caught somewhat flat-footed there and I think weren't prepared to sort of pivot. Ghost of Andrew Cuomo, right? Yeah, well, that, that's part of it. But the other was, you know, the the really competitive and spirited governor's race at the same time, right? So far more people who historically have not faced such a spirited contest for a governor. I mean, Lee Zeldin, I think, created a, a ripple in the state that um, made it possible after redistricting under the special master for, I guess, more Republicans to be pulled out in some of these districts than had been, well, these were new districts. Now, your question was, do I believe we can regain them? And I do, 100%. The brand for the Republicans right now in our state is, is, is you know, we have a George Santos dynamic that's only going to get worse, you know, and those Republican members are in with the, the madness here in Washington, hook, line, and sinker. I've not heard any of them to distinguish themselves from these MAGA Republicans. And believe me, I serve on key committees with a number of these colleagues, and it, it, it astounds me to hear them espouse those values, knowing that they come from New York State. Crazy. Even our Republicans in New York State 
tended to be level-headed. These folks are off the rail. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. I hope you'll come back. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Molly. Hi, it's Molly. And I am wildly excited that for the first time, Fast Politics, the show you're listening to right now is going to have merch for sale. Over at shop.fastpoliticspod.com, you can now buy shirts, hats, hoodies, and tote bags with our incredible designs. We've heard your cries to spread the word about our podcast and get a tote bag with my adorable Leo, the rescue puppy on it. And now you can grab this merchandise only at shop.fastpoliticspod.com. Thanks for your support. Kevin Cruz is a historian at Princeton University and author of Myth America. Welcome to Fast Politics, Kevin Cruz. Great to be here. I think of you as a history professor, (laughs) among other things. What's happening right now where we're seeing this uh, Republicans pump up a third party candidate? I was hoping you could talk to us a little bit about third party candidates and how that's gone down in sort of recent American history. I mean, they've usually gone down. I mean, (laughs) they don't do much. You can make arguments that uh, maybe at best they, they play spoiler, uh, I'll start endless fights online. You, know, you can talk about Ralph Nader in 2000, bleeding away just enough uh, support for uh, the Gore campaign in Florida to, to flip that. Politics is a game of many different moving parts, and so that's just one. But yeah, certainly that might have been an effect. But that's the best they can do as a spoiler, and that's just the nature of the two-party system. It's very rare for a third-party candidate to break free, uh, especially in the modern era. Ross Perot did extremely well in two races in the 90s, and even then it was barely a dent. And he only did well because he had a personal fortune to set on fire from the third-party campaign. And unless you're doing that, you're you're not going to get anywhere. But you do have to wonder with Ross Perot. I mean, he acted as a spoiler... He is part of the reason why H.W. didn't get reelected. Yeah, yeah, he absolutely is. But in a lot of ways, it was because he, in that one particular moment, was really coinciding with what Clinton was already saying, that the policies of Reagan and Bush on economics had failed, right? And they had, uh, they kind of together represented a real majority pushback against that. So in a lot of ways, Perot helped make the case for Clinton. But again, it's, it didn't rebound to his own benefit. It only helped the Democrats. Exactly. So this period is, is such a strange period. What would you say the historical precedent is? For the period we're living in? I mean, we're kind of at a crossroads, as we always are. It's, it's difficult to tell where the paths are going to leave until we're a few bits out. So I'm, I'm reluctant to kind of state authoritatively where we are now. It does seem like things are in flux. I mean, we've seen the Republican Party certainly over the last... 10 years, definitely the last since 2016 with the direction of, of Trump, has really moved into a a, a much more uh, reactionary, much more kind of white nationalist politics. This has always been a minor theme in the party for at least the last 50, 60 years, but a minor theme. And what Trump has done is kind of flip the script and, and put that part of the Republican coalition in the driver's seat. Uh, And it seems to be now, you know, just doubling down and doubling down over again and again on this kind of politics of white reaction that appeals to an increasingly 
thin slice of the electorate, but it's enough currently to win the Republican nomination. And that makes it a kind of a jump ball for a general election, given our politics. What that means for the long term Republican Party, I don't think you have to be an actuary to, to read the demographics <laughs> and know that this is not going to be sustainable long term. And eventually the fever will have to break. But for the immediate future, uh, I think they're wedded to this. Yeah. I mean, they they clearly see the writing on the wall here, right? Well, we, you know, we've had multiple, you know, they, they, they do these postmortems after every look. <laughs> yeah, the best. They usually have a clear eyed assessment of what went wrong, what they need to do better. And then they file that away and ignore it. And they do so because I think the the party analysts have a very long-term view of the party and are very, I think, astute about what doom lies ahead if they keep following this path. Politicians, though, are always looking one election ahead. And in the current climate, that's all they have to care about. And they are committed to that kind of politics of white reaction for the foreseeable future. Eventually, they'll get sick of losing, theoretically. It depends on what is losing, right? So they've right. lost the popular vote in, I can't even remember how many out of the last eight elections that they've been on the losing end. They've managed to hang on to the Senate due to the uh, the advantages they've got in that system. They managed to... I mean, they don't have the Senate now. They don't have, but I mean, they, they managed to have a, a real presence in the Senate throughout a lot of these years. Right. Uh, they've taken the White House. Uh, through the Electoral College. And so, yeah, they're losing. Uh, but as long as they actually win some levers of power, I think that's going to be enough to keep them in play. And, and it, the system is such that it rewards the winners, you know. And, and so whoever's got the power will find a way to hang on to it. If you were to sort of go back in history, have there been times when a political party has been this fucked? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, you could look at the the Whigs. Uh, in the 1850s. Yeah. I mean, you could actually look at the Democrats in the 1920s. They had won the White House uh, with, what, Cleveland and Wilson since the Civil War, and that was it. Uh, they didn't have control of virtually anything in the 1920s. Uh, Will Rogers famously said, you know, I don't belong to an organized political party. I'm a Democrat. And they just got their asses kicked time and time again. It was ultimately the Depression and the real discrediting of Republican policies that changed all that. But from the perspective of the 1920s, it looked like the Democrats were, you know, on the way out. Looking at the sort of historical precedent, predict the future, go. <laughs> look, I mean, look, I often say that, you know, uh, and I get why people want to ask historians to make these predictions, but my training is in hindsight. I'm not a to do this. And also, I, I write about all these people who've made bad predictions in the past, who when, you know, LBJ was elected in a landslide in 64, said, that's it, conservatism is dead. Well, not so much. Reagan elected in 1980 in a landslide. Well, liberalism is gone. Well, not so much. So it's tempting in the moment to kind of have these catastrophic takes, but I'm real wary about 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 saying them. I will say I, I do think we're in a, a moment of reckoning. How long it's going to take to come to pass uh, really is going to depend on how these next few elections shake out. If it really is a series of wipeouts for the Republicans, they'll be forced to change pace. If they can hang on and, and eke out something close to a 50-50 uh, existence, they'll stay on this as long as they can. Yeah, I think it sounds right. I'm wondering about this sort of world in which we find ourselves in. There is no precedent for a political candidate who is the front runner of a party being indicted both on state charges and federal charges and and likely more state charges to come. Yeah. There's no precedent, right? I mean, I mean, you, you know, not a major Eugene Debs uh, uh, <laughs> right. ran from prison. Uh, that's the closest we've gotten. 
And it hasn't happened because usually parties weed out the candidates with all this baggage. And it's it, there's there's a there's a kind of a self-regulating aspect to the party structure in which you want to have the candidate with the biggest chance of winning a general election be your nominee. And believe it or not, Molly, traditionally, <laughs> when a candidate was indicted for crimes at the federal or state level, that was sort of a deal breaker. Uh, they would not nominate that person. They would instead find somebody who had the same kind of policy beliefs, but did not have a long criminal record to be the standard bearer for the party. So we're in an unprecedented place solely because Republican voters have apparently turned into a cult where it's got to be this one man uh, and only this one man. Yeah, the, he does have a, a hold on the party. I mean, I'm trying to think of like precedent, precedent. I mean, maybe where a sort of one candidate has had a sort of death part on a political party. Uh, I mean, you could say like George Washington, right? Sure, sure. But but even then, Washington, above anyone else, made it clear it wasn't about him. I mean, right. he sets that pattern for uh, uh, serving only two terms and kind of, kind of the modern day Cincinnatus. So he does have that. I mean, death grip is the right term here because there have been parties that have really been beholden to major political figures. Think of the Democrats and FDR. Right. That's what I was actually thinking. FDR ran for three terms. So ran for four terms. Four, four terms. terms. Yeah. Right. And and was really committed there. But he was a winner, right? Reagan had some some low points in his presidency, but you know, won the first election, won re-election, was regarded as a winner. Trump really is a death grip because he's going to kill him. They really have convinced themselves that he's some sort of winner. He didn't win a majority of the popular vote in 2016 or 2020. He lost the House, lost the Senate on his watch. He's got negative coattails. And yet they are convinced that he is the one and only. It's really bizarre. Do you think that there's a president that's not a political president? That's sort of more of like a celebrity president. Like I'm thinking of like, is it, is he Elvis? Is he, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. is there some like Pied Piper like celebrity figure that Donald Trump could sort of track to in real life? Yeah. I mean, I mean, there is a sense that, that it is all celebrity. And for all the criticisms Republicans had about Barack Obama being a celebrity president, I mean, this is the, the kind of the host of Celebrity Apprentice. This is a guy who's done pitches for Sharper Image. And, you know, this is not <laughs> someone who has kind of a deep, <laughs> um, you know, a serious kind of gravitas behind him. It's all image. And that's what they like. And so, I mean, I'm not the first one to draw this comparison, but it always reminds me of a uh, character of Lonesome Roads, uh, Facing the Crowd. Uh, the Elliot Kazan, yeah, uh, about, you know about about a TV huckster who gets a political following. I mean, that's kind of what we've got here. Or if you want to be darker, you know, it's Jim Jones in Guyana uh, having his uh, his followers drink the flavor aid like a cult. I mean, that's the kind of real commitment to a single uh, political leader. I mean, if you want to go big, it's kind of the cult of personality we've seen in authoritarian dictatorships across the 20th century. Yeah. That is really a, a sense that whatever the leader says, that is what we believe. And, and it seemed like that was an exaggeration until we got to uh, the 2020 campaign when the Republican Party didn't even put together a platform. I mean, that is amazing. And all they said was basically, whatever Donald Trump says, that's what we believe. I mean, that shows how far they've gone in 
from principles to personality. Last night, Brett Baer did this interview with Donald Trump. What's happening at Fox is defies explanation, but basically they got fined, you know, almost a billion dollars for lying about the election. And now they're sort of trying to push back against some of the lying about the election that has happened on their network. Again, I don't think you get a medal for that, but I am curious what your sort of take on that is. I'm curious also, like as a student of history, this situation we find ourselves in now with a media that is really largely unregulated and a social media that is almost completely unregulated, does this just end in tears or is there some kind of self-regulation that happens or some kind of bright spot if you look at history? The movie Network came out in 1976 and was, you know, seems surreal and fantastical back then, but we're living in it. I mean, it really is that news outlets are treated like any other form of entertainment and they're looking for ratings. And that's thus the financial model we've set up. Those are the incentives they have. It used to be that they thought they could get ratings by being the most respected name in news. Now it's just whatever gets eyeballs. I don't think there's a real chance of any kind of self-regulation as long as there's still an audience demand for this kind of stuff. But I will say what Fox has done recently, and they've been kind of, as you know, wildly uneven in their approach, what the Brett Bear interview, I think, showed was that they do see there are certain lines they cannot cross. They cannot uh, allow the kind of election lies to go unchallenged or, the, or they know there's going to be a price for them to pay. They, they didn't care about the country paying a price, but now that there's a price for them to pay, I think they absolutely care. So they're going to do what they can to shoot that down. And it's a good thing for us because there are certain people inside the kind of the Trump cult who are never going to turn in to hear CNN or NPR or MSNBC or anything else from the so-called, you know, lamestream media box mm-hmm. is, is becoming more suspect in their eyes. There's a chance they hear it. If the only thing that comes out of this is that maybe Trump learns he can't spread those lies as easily on Fox and then he starts dialing it down, that in and of itself is a good thing. Right. But it is. I mean, they are also renegotiating cable carriage fees. There's a lot of self-interest here, but it is a bit, I mean... One of the things that I think is pretty interesting what's happened with Rupert Murdoch is he was one of the sort of creators of a sort of media complex that runs on opinion and far right opinion. That is not new, those kind of newspapers, magazines and television channels. Not at all. No, no, they've always been there. But but what is new is the centrality that they play now. You had the kind of things that would have been spewed on you know, Fox News or OANN or, or Newsmax or any of these channels uh, kind of on the right to far right. They'd always been there, but they came out as, you know, a, a mimeograph newsletter or an AM radio program, right? The reach was fairly small and there was a real drive on the part of so-called respectable conservatives to draw a line between those people and themselves, Right. Uh, William F. Buckley was a master of this, uh, constantly, you know, fighting with the John Birch Society in public to make people in the National Review seem respectable by comparison. There's a lot of work that shows that that that's largely overblown, but he knew the value of that, right? That you had to signal publicly, I am not one of these wackos. Well, now it's the exact opposite, right? You've got Republican leaders in the House, presidential aspirates, who are trying to say, I'll pardon the January 6th insurrectionist, are giving nods and winks 
to QAnon, to all kinds of conspiracies on the far right. They want to make sure that the voters out there who believe in these crazy things think that they're at least sympathetic, if not uh, one of them. One last question. Who was the dumbest member of the Senate? Go. Oh, God, it's so tough. I mean, come on. I mean, I, I got to say Tommy Tuberville at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. That is correct. You win the podcast. Yeah, it's amazing. It's got to be Tuberville. It's got to be Tuberville, right? The Louis Gomert of the Senate. He really is. He really is. Yeah, the best. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you'll come back. Anytime. Always great to be here. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. Molly Jung Fast, that Supreme Court is like singing that song, How Low Can You Go, about their approval rating just every day. Here's the thing about the conservative justices, Alito and Thomas, the worst two. They cannot fly commercial. <laughs> the problem, they cannot fly commercial. They are unable. And sadly, because they only make a couple hundred thousand dollars or maybe a little less as Supreme Court justices, the most powerful job in the land, they have to fly commercial. So they must take these donations, these gifts, quote unquote, from rich conservatives who often have cases in front of the court, like Paul Singer. And uh, they have to do it because they really don't like flying commercial. And I have to say, I respect the hell out of the grift. We're going to see how unpopular the Supreme Court is uh, going to be. I think we're just scraping the bottom and there's more to go. And for that, that is our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.